Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing? Good. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a text that you'd like to open in front of you, we are beginning today uh, in Matthew's biography of the life of Jesus. We're going to start in verse 17. Uh, Jesus is about to turn a corner in the Sermon on the Mount uh, thing that we've been looking at, and uh, it's going to get, um, well, it's always been good, but it's going to get maybe heavy. Uh, Maybe that's the word. Verse 17. Do not think, I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, as we uh, get into this, uh, please would you take it and get it into our hearts. Uh, There's some challenging words here uh, as we wrestle with them more. I think they become more and more challenging. Uh, And so in the midst of that, as we often say, there's probably some of us here that feel we're afflicted right now. And God, would you bring comfort to those that are afflicted? And there's probably some of us that would own to being comfortable right now. And God, would you bring affliction to those that are comfortable? Amen. So we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a little while now. Let me just catch you up to speed if you missed last week. As an umbrella, you might say that the Sermon on the Mount could be described as a guide to human flourishing. It's it's God's way to live. It's the best way for human beings to be human. Some people have even called it a new way to be human. Jesus gives his manifesto for what a kingdom looks like. And and last week, we we looked at this idea that the part of that is this movement that that each of us are born with this kind of sense of identity. There's this real meanness to me. I do what I want to do. I live how I want to live. And I'm told all these things by my parents as I'm growing up. You're good. You're great. You're strong. And those are important. You need to know those things. But if taken too far, it leads to this very me-centric view of the, the, the universe. And, and so somewhere Jesus invites his disciples to become part of this we, this group, but not just for them, this group that is essentially for the world around them too. And so what we said is that there's this big difference between the you that's singular and the, the, the y'all that, that's got that more, it just never stops being funny to you people, does it? It's just <laughs> me trying to do American accents. It, it's, it's corporate. It's group, it's, it's bigger, it's a group of people who are doing something for the world. So, so what we might say is that, that the Jesus ask of us as people, the Jesus movement for his first disciples is that I bring me to we for the sake of the world. 
that with all that you are, with your gifts, with your personality, with everything that you have as resources, you make something, you make a we into this stronger thing. You, the thing is less without you. It's less without me. And, and that's the invite that Jesus seems to make to this sermon on the mounting. And, and now as we begin to turn the corner, the passage that we came across today is a fascinating one because it's kind of like the linchpin for everything else that you'll read, all of the challenges that are coming our way. And I would suggest that over the course of the next few weeks and maybe even months, Jesus will, will, will push on buttons for each of us that make us a little bit uncomfortable. If there's nothing that you read in the Sermon on the Mount that makes you go, ouch, or even, I don't like that, then you may not really be reading it. You may maybe just glossing over it because Jesus doesn't have sides, it seems. He goes after people that, that would have one reflection that maybe we might say is more of a right side thing and, and another that's maybe more of a left side thing. Jesus will talk about sanctity of marriage. On one hand, he'll also talk about pacifism and turning the, the other cheek on the other hand. And, and every one of us probably has a place where we might say, oh, Jesus, I kind of wish you hadn't said that. I kind of wish I could remove that. And and this week is really the heartbeat to all that. I I would say essentially this week, we're talking, it's a conversation about the rules. What are the rules that are in play uh, for the way that the world works and how do we know? And so I'd like to begin with a a story. A, A few years ago, I just moved over to America from from England and I was living in Michigan and I took a group of students down to Detroit, down to one of the the poorer parts of Detroit. 48202 was at one point one of the poorest zip codes in America and I took this bunch of suburban kids in this church van down to to hang out just to to learn about the culture and it was this brilliantly eye-opening time But, but, but what none of us had accounted for was the fact that they had a a person with them that was very new to life in America. There was just some simple things that I was still learning. And so, so perhaps the biggest shock for them was the moment where we were driving happily down a street at about 45 miles an hour and, and a sign emerged that apparently meant nothing to me. It was this one. <laughs> now, now in, in my defense, we don't have these signs in England. They're actually like, they can only be used in very specific situations. So, so most of the time, people just, you don't see one of these. In Detroit's defense, this is like the clearest sign that you can come across. It's like you just do what the sign says and all is well. And so this stop sign emerged and I just continued driving. I actually blew through it and made an immediate right turn onto John R Street, which is a one-way street. Now, in Detroit's defense, we have these one-way streets all over the world, and I should have known better. In my defense, the sign was maybe not properly uh, aligned and it didn't maybe allow me to see where I I was going, but it was this moment of complete chaos where for these poor 11 and 12-year-olds, they had this moment where they said, the adult in charge of us and in charge of our safety has no clue how the rules of, of the road work. What are we going to do? In actual fact, this question, it emerges in so many different areas of life. 
if you are still in a world where you're dating, there's, there's now, I'm told, these whole new rules for dating. And, and some of us, if we were to be back in that world now, we'll be completely lost. Do you open a car door? Do you not open a car door? Do you pay the whole check or bill? Do you not pay the whole check or bill? There's new rules for parenting. There's new ways that we're trying to figure out that in this modern world. Everything seems to have some element of, of rules that may, maybe have changed just a little. And then churches from one part of the world to another seem to operate on different rules. The writer Kenneth Bailey uh, talks about how a couple he was working with out in the Middle East, a couple of church planters came to him with a question. They, they said, we need your help. A couple are trying to join our church and we feel like the thing that they've done is egregious. They are guilty of a sin, of a failure, and we're just not really comfortable with them coming to our church. And he wanted to find out more about, well, what had they done that was so shocking to this, these pastors that had seen a few things? And the pastor said, well, they eloped. They eloped. They left their parents and they got married. And, and as he kind of tried to pursue this, he said, well, how old were they? Like, was it, were they just so young? It was, no, they were 21 and 22. <laughs> And they eloped, and we don't feel that people that elope can be part of our church without going through some kind of repentance thing, some kind of way of showing that they're wrong. Now, now of course, to us living in the West in the 21st century, we say, well, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. They were an age where they could make that choice, and they got married all is well. But to these people living in this society, in this place, to dishonor your parents in that way was completely against everything that Scripture said. Paul says, honor your parents. And we have this kind of maybe arbitrary idea that that only lasts till you get to 18, right? But to these people, they're like, no, no, that's permanent. That's the way of Jesus. We're all probably wrestling in different ways with what are the rules that are in play? And of course, for a whole Jewish society, this was a wrestling point too. What are the rules? What's the law? How do you see it? How do you read it? And so when we read the Sermon on the Mount, there's something fascinating going on here that I hope that we can grasp together. Just just track with this for a moment. In Matthew chapter five, verse one and two, it says this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. Jesus is on a mountain teaching people about the way of God. And and Matthew's unashamedly, as we said on week one, Jesus-centric. It's like these six clauses or statements. He saw the crowds. He went up the mountain. He sat down. His disciples came to him. He opened his mouth. He taught them. For a nation where every single one of your significant events had happened on a mountain, this starts to mean something. God had appeared to them, to Moses, on a mountain. He'd appeared in a moment of fire coming down from heaven on a mountain. Things happened on mountain. This is all the same mountain. And and now you've got Jesus on a mountain starting to unpack the way of God to a bunch of people. Out of all the ways that God appeared on a mountain in the Old Testament, this is maybe the most significant in Exodus chapter 19. It says, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. A whole bunch of people 
are led out of a place called Egypt as slaves and are now free. And the way the text describes those people is a mixed multitude, a ragtag bunch, an air of rave, a motley crew. And they walk through a desert and they end up at a mountain and God reveals himself to this 12 tribes of people. And now Jesus is on a mountain and he'll call 12 disciples, not an accidental number by the way. And he'll start talking about how you might live out the law of Moses in his day and age, how he sees that kind of thing. You might even say the Sermon on the Mount could could be described as this, as, as Amy Jill Levine describes it. It's a beginner's guide to the kingdom of heaven. The king is on a mountain and he's teaching the way of God to a whole bunch, a ragtag bunch of people. To a group of people in first century Israel, they would say, oh my goodness, this is familiar. This seems like it tracks back into some of our history. This seems like a something is happening on a mountain again. So as we get to today's text, how did it start? Just think back for a moment or look at it in your, your scriptures in front of you. It begins this way. Do not think. Do not think. Why might it start with do not think? It starts with do not think because there's a whole bunch of reasons to think. There's a whole bunch of reasons that based on what Jesus has done, you might start to ask some questions. When we look at the opening and ask, why, why might Jesus say, do not think? Well, well, for all of these reasons. Jesus has called unlearned disciples. Jesus attracts a ragtag bunch of listeners, a crowd that goes up a mountain with him. Jesus gives a kingdom proclamation to all of these people. And Jesus calls his disciples as heralds of this new kingdom. There's a whole thing going on there that Jesus is starting to say this thing, it all revolves around me. And so the question that follows is, well, what happens to all of the old stuff? Jesus starts this, this new thing that's, that, that has him in the center that pulls everybody towards him. And so for a whole bunch of people in the first century, this is the question they might ask. Is Jesus changing the rules? Is Jesus changing the way things have always worked? Now, few groups of people in that for the ragtag bunch, for the outsiders, for the marginalized, maybe even for his first disciples, there's, is Jesus changing the rules? Because that would be amazing. If we were out from this heavy thing that we have to carry, if we were out from this thing that we're always like worrying about, can we live up to the standard? If we were free to just be free of that, that, that would be incredible. And then for the, the, the religious people, for the teachers of the law that we'll come across a little bit later, well, well maybe the, the response is a little different because for them it's like, wait, is Jesus changing things? Because we've done this this way for a long time. We have no desire to change how it's done. Suddenly he's calling unlearned people. Well, we've been through the education process. We know how to do it right. We, we can't just start adding people that, that, that are doing it their own way. This is, this is gonna get Messy for a whole bunch of people in different ways. This question, is Jesus here changing the rules? Is he bringing something brand new? Is a concern. Has Jesus changed the law, this this law code that we've lived lived, lived for so long? 
Do not think I have come, Jesus says in the text, to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So some terms are going to come up here that, that I want to make sure we're all on the same page on. For some of us, they might be new. When Jesus says the law or the prophets, there's a couple of ways to read that. In a technical level, there's, uh, in, your, in the, the scriptures you have maybe in front of you, you'll see an index. Uh, and in the Old Testament, there's a few different books. The first five uh, are called the law, the law of Moses specifically. And then there's a whole bunch of books that would be called the prophets. There's the, the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then there's the minor prophets. They are not called minor because they are bad or less good at writing than the major prophets. The books they write are just a lot smaller. So, so here what you see is just this group turn for everything that's been written before for the scriptures. Do not think that I've come to abolish it or to throw it all away. To a first century person, they would see this and say, okay, Jesus is talking about the things that were written in the past. I haven't come to throw them away. And, uh, and this word here, abolish, is this fascinating little Greek word, kataluo. Uh, yes, abolish is a good term, but, but to, f- to let fully loose or, or to loosen down is the exact translation. I was trying to figure out how to explain this, and, and I don't know enough about manual work to, to know whether this is accurate, but uh, theoretically, I know that you tighten up a bolt, right? I don't know if that means you can loosen it down, but if you know, come and let me know. But, but maybe the best way that we might understand this is through, uh, through the idea of downhill mountain biking. Imagine for a moment you uh, have ridden up a hill, and the confusion is to me that anyone rides up hills, but you are doing the part where you are riding down a hill, and you're kind of going fast, you kind of get to that point where it feels a little bit exciting, and then you have a moment where you go to pull your brakes, and they don't do anything. It's because I've come along and loosened them (laughs) off, and the brakes no longer work. And you might yell Cataluo in that moment, like, ah, you might yell something else as well, because it looks pretty scary uh, at this moment. But this is the word. It's to, to take off the, the sense of control. To, it's to release the thing. When Jesus says, I've not come to abolish it, what he says is this, I, ha- I haven't come to take away the law. I haven't come to remove it. I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to do something else. I've come to what is the end of this verse. I've not come to abolish those things, but to fulfill them. And this idea of fulfill is something that, that Matthew has already used. He's already used this word like multiple times. He keeps saying Jesus did this to fulfill something. Someone did this to fulfill something. Fulfill, fulfill, fulfill. There's this idea that Jesus is taking what's been in the past and he's, he's bringing it to the completion uh, that it was supposed to have. So in Matthew 3 verse 15, it says that when Jesus wanted to get baptized and John the Baptist said, no, it says Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John said, oh, okay then. Uh, Constantly Jesus is doing something to fulfill things. And he he says, I didn't come to abolish the law to get rid of it. I came to bring it to fulfillment. I came to make it what it was always supposed 
to be. Next verse, verse 18, he says this, for truly I tell you, Jesus has this beautiful way. You know how we use amen at the end of a prayer? Jesus uses it at the start of the thing he's about to say. It's maybe a confidence thing, but it's, it's beautiful. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter and not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That idea of until heaven and earth disappear is, is a fascinating one. Because if you, if you grew up in church, maybe you grew up with this idea that, that at some point God would he'd, he'd destroy the world. He'd remove it. He'd maybe make a new world. Maybe you grew up with an idea of the rapture or something like that. That isn't what Jesus is saying here. To a first century Jewish person, the idea that God might ever destroy the world was like a no. He already did that once in the flood and he said that he'd never do it again. So, so the idea that God might on some level be like, oh, well, I, I said I wouldn't destroy it by flood again, but there's plenty of other ways to destroy it would be really deeply problematic to a whole bunch of Jewish people. This, this phrase, until heaven and earth disappear, is kind of similar to the way that we might use this expression. <laughs> So, you know, we, we, we say something like this, right? We say something like, oh, I'll do that when pigs fly. Or uh, we have all sorts of these sorts of things. Similar sort of context going on here. If heaven and earth could disappear, then maybe the law might disappear. But the, the, the reality, the nuance behind it is no, no, that doesn't happen. It's never going to happen. Not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So if we were to go around the room and you had a text in front of you with this scripture, depending on the version that you read, it might have a whole bunch of different ways of saying this. It might have it exactly like I have it here. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear. Uh, there is other versions, not the smallest dot of an I, or cross of a T will by any means disappear. I kept trying to write this small I there and obviously my spell check didn't like it so it just kept trying to make it a capital I and I just thought that's kind of funny, it's trying to make the little dot on the I disappear. But it wouldn't, I, I got it there for you. Uh, not the smallest dot of an I or cross of a T will by any means disappear. And, uh, and the King James, beautifully, uh, not the smallest jot or tittle will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Those seem like very foreign concepts and maybe questionable concepts to have uh, up on screen. What is Jesus talking about here? So, a couple of little tiny details. I'm gonna teach you as much Hebrew as I picked up from seminary in just a few moments. Uh, Yod or Jod is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's like just smallest in terms of like the actual size of it. Uh, and then the, the, the word tittle is this tiny little portion of this letter here. So this is what turns the letter bet into the letter kath, and it's super easy to miss. And so <clears throat> Jesus says, imagine the smallest letter in your language. Uh, imagine the tiniest little thing, the thing that changes a O to a Q, the, the, the most incidental little detail it might seem, that can't disappear from the law. Everything will remain. Jesus is trying to help us capture the idea that no, the, the whole thing 
is sticking around. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And Jesus is going back to that same idea, right? It's, it's the constant idea of fulfill, 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 fulfill. Somewhere, Jesus says, history is going somewhere. And all of these things had a purpose. And I didn't come to get rid of this. I came to fulfill it. I came to make it what it was supposed to be. Is Jesus changing the rules? His answer is, uh, well, I'm, I'm not coming to get rid of them, but I am coming to make the rules what they were always supposed to be. I'm coming to make them what they were always supposed to be. There was a thing that maybe was lost, and I'm coming to bring it back to life. Uh, so this is the first part of the text for today. And, and then we switch and, and we talked a while back about this word, therefore. It's always kind of this turning of the corners, something like based on what I've said before, here's a couple of things to know. And, and that's where Jesus is going to lead us now. He's going to give us, I would suggest, a couple of invitations, a couple of maybe challenges to how we approach all the other things he's going to say. Because as I said earlier, for the next few weeks, Jesus is going to start to touch on all of these different subjects. He'll touch on sexuality and marriage. He'll touch on pacifism. He'll touch on anger. He'll touch on finances. He'll go to all of these different areas. And and this is his preparation for how we might hear and how we might read those things. And so I would suggest in this first verse, in verse 19, this is the invitation. The invitation is to trust Jesus as your guide on how to live. Because as you read, as you continue through the Sermon on the Mount, I would expect, as I said, there's moments where you say, I don't love that. My, my scriptures, my, my Bible is written, it's got writing all over it, all of these different things. I'm like, why, why, why did you say this? Wouldn't it have been easier if you'd just done this? Wouldn't it have been better if you'd said this? There's so many different questions about what I see there. I would suggest this first invitation is is to trust Jesus as your guide on how to live. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. When he says here, these commandments, he's not talking about the old commandments. He's talking about everything that I'm about to say. Anyone who takes anything that I've said and just says, no, I'm not doing that, throwing that out. I'm I'm keeping the other stuff, keeping the stuff I like, but I'm throwing that one out. Anyone who does that, he says, will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices the teacher and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's this, this is maybe warning, I would say, that Jesus gives us. Don't casually throw this stuff aside. Does this mean that you don't read it and say, Jesus, what's the heartbeat here? What are you, what are you really saying? No, no, it doesn't mean that at all. But it means that, that, that our desire, our personal desire just to say, yeah, I'm going to take everything you've said, Jesus, but throw this piece aside. He says, don't do that. Don't do that casually. Don't just cast it out as though it doesn't mean anything. And, and he throws in this phrase, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And, and some people would say this, this is like a, a code for won't even be included. But I'm just going to take it as what it says. Like it will be called least in the kingdom of heaven is what he said. And, and this has happened all over history. Uh, this is Thomas Jefferson 
although you guys know that, right? And uh, he's famous for a few different things, for writing the Declaration of Independence, but also famous for for taking the Bible and and deciding he was gonna cut it up and remove everything that didn't make sense to him. He went through it and said, well, no, that doesn't like track with my modern brain, I'm gonna take it out. No, I don't like that piece. That doesn't feel right to me. I'm going to re- remove it. And, and surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, I should say, he ended up with a Jesus that looked exactly like him. He lo- ended up with a Jesus that looked exactly like him. The temptation each of us will face as we work through the Sermon on the Man is to read what Jesus said and say, I don't like that piece. And I don't like that piece and not to just take him at his word. So here's the beautiful question, the beautiful tension that you and I get to work with. Have I decided that I trust Jesus and therefore I can trust what he says? Or am I trying to figure out whether I trust what Jesus says and then that will allow me at some point to trust Jesus? Let me say that again for you. We get to ask, have I decided that I trust Jesus? And then I get to trust what Jesus says because of that trust. Or am I trying to figure out, do I trust what Jesus says? And then I'm gonna figure out later, do I trust Jesus? One starts from this premise of this is who Jesus is and he's wiser than I am. He is, has more understanding than I have. And, and so when I read what he says, yes, I'm gonna wrestle with it. I'm gonna wrestle with the depths of what he means, but I am gonna come at it with this approach that says he might know something I don't know. He might know something that I don't know. They're two very different approaches, and I would say that Jesus definitely invites us into the second of those. He invites us to begin with trusting him as a guide on how to live. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven, and I love the nuance that he lands on here because he throws in this word, practice. He says it's not enough just to, to, to believe that they're good things to do or believe that he might be right, but we actually are invited to enter into them and say, Jesus, I'm going to put these things into practice. I'm going to obey what you called us to obey. The writer Frederick Nietzsche said a couple of hundred years ago, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be long obedience in the same direction. There, thereby, that thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. Now he would say, I think he'd be horrified that I was using this to say that you should follow Jesus. Uh, he, he would say he didn't know what the thing was that you should do, but I think I agree. There is a thing like this word long obedience or this phrase long obedience is fascinating. Discipleship, you might say, is long obedience in the same direction. And, and Dallas Willard maybe unpacks this idea beautifully, beautifully for us. He says, so the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by professional culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Will they break out of the churches to be his church, 
to be without human force or violence, his mighty force for good on earth, drawing the churches after them towards the eternal purposes of God. He unpacks that idea that, that, that as we pursue discipleship with Jesus, as we say, Jesus, I'm gonna trust the way that you say to live, that if we live that all around us in the world, about us, it might be a deeply transformative thing for the world in general. I would suggest the first invitation in this passage is, is to take Jesus as a guide for, or the guide for how to live. And then there's a second one in the last verse. I'd say the second invitation is to begin from a transformed heart, not from any other place. It's to begin from a transformed heart. In the last verse, Jesus introduces this, this group of people that will become a constant battling point for him in his ministry. He just says, here, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The Pharisees were a group that were really good at obeying laws. In actual fact, to hear someone like Jesus say, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would be a terrifying thing to hear. To break it down, he's essentially saying, unless your righteousness and obedience of the law, unless it's greater than someone who's really good at obeying the laws, then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The first reaction must be one of horror. And yet what we learn about Jesus' understanding of this group of people is that, that he sees their way of obeying the laws as being somewhat toxic. All through Matthew 23, he refers to this group of people by this word hypocrite that we'll unpack in just a second. R.T. France, the commentator on Matthew, says this, to speak of a righteousness which goes far beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees might therefore seem to be an impossible, even ridiculous ideal. As long as righteousness is understood in terms of literal obedience to rules and regulations, it would be hard to find anyone who attempted it more rigorously and more consistently than the scribes and the Pharisees. The paradox of Jesus' demand here makes sense only if their basic premise as to what righteousness consists of is put in question. Jesus is not talking about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game but about a different level or concept of righteousness altogether. Remember back to the start of these verses, and Jesus says, do not think I've come to uh, abolish the law. No, no, I've, I've, I've come to fulfill it. What Jesus is beginning to suggest is that the way that these Pharisees, these teachers of the law obeyed is, is never the way it was supposed to be done. In Matthew 23, as I say, he uses this word hypocrite, which, which could be taken to mean actor, to, to, to mean someone who puts on a show. And so to help us unpack this, I want, I want to show you this beautiful little clip from a TV show uh, from the early 2000s called Extras. A anyone seen Extras? Anyone been a fan of Extras? Uh, a couple of people. Good. I like it. It's new to all of you. And, and so th this show was created by the, the guy that created the show The Office. And so what he does is he invites all of these famous actors onto his show, but they play themselves playing a part. So you'll see Sir Ian McAllen here, Gandalf the wizard. He's playing Sir Ian, but not as he really is. And so see if you can see the connection here between this idea of the Pharisees playing a part and how he describes acting in this comic way. <laughs> 
So yeah, just the beautiful interchange between the look of like, yeah, yeah, I get it, but you're confused. No, no, he's not confused because he is just describing the simple process, right, of acting, of going through this idea of imagining to be someone else. When Jesus uses the word hypocrite, He's talking about the same process when he says to to these Pharisees, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. This is vicious stuff to say to someone in the first century. In the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness in the same way Ian McKellen beautifully describes his process of seeing, 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 wizard, you shall not pass. Uh, He imagined, Jesus imagines a whole bunch of people on the surface committed to the law who are potentially doing the same thing. They may look one way in one setting, but they have a veneer that allows them to look like they fit in to their religious setting. I would suggest the same temptation that was true of them in the first century is probably true of us today as well. There's this temptation to to be one person in a work setting, one person in a school setting, one person in all sorts of different settings, and then there's this moment of transition. It's maybe the moment you get in the car to head to church on Sunday morning. Maybe the moment I get out of my car in the parking lot or walk into the building, but there's this temptation to say, I've set aside the other thing, and I've now put on the, the garb of an actor, and I'm now in this mode of, like, I'm different. I'm now living out the way that I'm supposed to live. When we wrestle with the question of, did Jesus change the law? One of the ideas that I think I've even taught in the past, maybe not here, but maybe some years ago, is, was this, that, that Jesus made the law more difficult. But I don't think that's actually true at all. I think Jesus just reclaimed it as it was supposed to be. All through the Old Testament, there's these moments where God, through voices of the prophets, says things like this, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. All the way through, God says things like, don't just do it on the surface. Don't just pretend some of the time. Live it with the whole of your heart, the whole of your being. That that was always the way that he described it. In the message version of Joel chapter 2, it says this, change your life, not just your clothes. Change your life, not just your clothes. There's this temptation, I would suggest, with the Sermon on the Mount. One, to pick and choose, uh, to take things that you like and things that you don't like. For me to take things I like and things that I don't like. And the other temptation is to say, I can do this, but only some of the time. I, I can do this, but only on the surface. And Jesus seems to say over and over again, no, that's just not going to cut it. C.S. Lewis says this, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. For what we are trying to do is to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our great aim in life, and yet at the same time be good. 
We are all trying to let our mind and heart go their own way, centered on money or pleasure or ambition, and hoping in spite of this to behave honestly and chastely and humbly. And that is exactly what Christ warned us you could not do. The implication to everything that Jesus will say is this, there is a way to do this on the surface that might satisfy the letter of the law but there's a way to live it out from the heart that looks completely different, that isn't acting. Uh, I would suggest as a summary, we might say this, religion asks us to play a part, Jesus offers a transformed heart. That seems to be the core of everything he'll say for the next few chapters. Come to me and be changed, and then enter into this long life of long obedience, obedience, trusting that I know the best way to be human. Ruth Haley Barton says this, the best gift you can give yourself is your transformed, the best gift you can give is your transformed self. Religion asks us to play a part. Jesus offers a transformed heart. Let's pray. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me. And I'm just going to invite you to contemplate those two challenges that Jesus makes. How do you long to pick and choose? Where does the Sermon on the Mount hit you personally? Perhaps the challenge for this week is this, to take it and, and read it all the way through and be really honest with it. Be really honest in your notes of Jesus, I don't like this part. Jesus, I feel like you could have said this better. Jesus, this doesn't fit with how I see the world. That honesty is healthy and good. And I would suggest again, like if you don't find any part of it that you don't like, you might not be reading it really. You might just be glossing over the top of it. Take it and read it. It takes 12 minutes. And just know, I don't like this. I love this. I feel like society would be better if we did this. I feel like society is worse for this. Take it and be honest with it and wrestle with it. And then you get to wrestle with, do I trust Jesus? And that, does that allow me to trust what he says? Or is my honest battle right now is I'm trying to figure out if I can trust him. And I'm trying to figure out if I can trust what he says. And that's, a good, that's, that's fine. This is a safe space to do that. But at some point, the decision we make is this. Do I trust Jesus as a guide and how to live. And then the other question was this, maybe there's this way that you would say, I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to live out all of these things. I've been really trying. And yet the invitation of Jesus is to begin with a transformed heart. And maybe in that moment, you're just like someone who's just willing to come alongside you and pray with you. And our prayer team will be dotted off to the side. But as you go into this week, take this beautiful text and read it and wrestle with it. Get angry with it. Tell Jesus how you'd see it differently, how you think it might be wrong. And then come to that good space of saying, but Jesus, I trust you as a guide to live. Trust that you're wiser than I am. Trust that there might be something I don't know and that you do know. Jesus, for my friends, as we wrestle with this, this hard text, Thank you that you came to do this new thing in the world. You did more than just change the rules. You came to fulfill them. You came to show us how life was made to be lived. And you didn't leave us to begin by ourselves. 
You did it through transformed hearts. And so all of us in this space, in the ways that we need transforming, would you transform us? Would you be with us? To those of us that are sick and tired of the same story, the same thing that seems like it just lurks in our, in our world and story, the thing we can't just feel like we can't escape from. For those of us that are wrestling with, can I trust you, Jesus? Were you just a wise person a couple of thousand years ago or were you, are you really who you say you are? In all the ways that we might be wrestling today, would you be with us? Remind us that we're going to be okay and you're present with us. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.